Hello, and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast. With your host, Kenneth Bocor. This is episode 47, recorded on March the 3rd, 2023. This episode of the EV Revolution Show is sponsored by File Sanctuary. Need a great web host for your business? Need to get email at yourdomain.com? They provide professional, feature-rich web and email hosting for any project you have in mind. Get started today at filesanctuary.net forward slash cloud and save 10% with promo code EVREVSHOW. All right, and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show. As you heard, my name is Kenneth Bocor, your host for episode podcast number 47 here. I'm always excited to be scouring the planet looking for smart people in the electrification automotive space. And of course, I have another smart guest today. We're going to talk about kind of what's going on from consumer mentality that this company has done a lot of research on. It's uh, it's a privilege to be able to announce Mr. David Voxlin. He's the Director of Sustainability and Behavior Change for Skim, a company that uh, prides itself on providing decision behavior uh, expertise. David, how are you, sir? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Kenneth. Thanks for joining me. You're you're coming in live from the UK. You're my, I think maybe my third um, interview in a row that's UK based, which is interesting because right. I do talk to people around the world. That's the beauty of the Zoom platform or conferencing is you can be anywhere. I've talked to people from Israel and from West Coast of the States and other parts of Europe. It's all over the place. So uh, happy for you to take the time in the uh, late afternoon, your time, early evening. I appreciate that. Now, maybe you could tell my listeners first a little bit about uh, Skim, um, what you guys do. I understand that you are a behavior research consultancy. Uh, You've done a lot of research into consumer attitudes, not just in the UK, but in Germany and in the US and, and other markets, I would assume looking at emotions and knowledge as to what is holding back mass market EV adoption. And that's a great vision, a great viewpoint to be looking at, because as we discussed briefly before I press the recording button, you know, the the automakers are kind of focused on what they think consumers want to see and hear. But the reality is there might be a disconnect there, and I'm hoping we can uh, find some of those. So is there anything more you want to tell me about Skim? Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, We are... So in the industry, there are some big players. We're more of a boutique consultancy. So we're 300 people headquartered in uh, the Netherlands, uh, but mm. we're spread out with 10 locations across the world. Uh, unfortunately, nothing in Canada yet, but we're uh, in New York and a few other places in the States um, and then spread out across the rest of the globe. And as you were alluding to, <clears throat> we keep our ear on the ground to um, consumer sentiment, and we really combine um, primary research um, together with some very sort of deep advanced analytical expertise. And pairing those two together, uh, we call ourselves decision behavior experts, because that's really what we help our clients understand, whether in the automotive industry or in other industries, um, how do people make decisions? Uh, and you can come back to all of your piece of marketing um you know how do you go to market with the right price and um and the right product etc so that's that's where we focus on excellent and i take it that not only that you have smart people working for you to be able to help um you know uh, uh, 
sift through the analysis, the data that's collected and, and you know, provide recommendations to clients. But uh, are you using any AI uh, with that as well? Yeah, more and more. Mm -hmm. um, and it's part of sort of this usually some kind of quantitative uh, modeling that we mm -hmm. do. Uh, we also collect a lot of responses. We can sit in and interview people like you and I do, right? Um, creating endless amounts of uh, conversational <laughs> data. And, and I, AI is now with um, ChatGPT as well, getting to a level where we can actually leverage that technology. It's always been clunky in the past, mm -hmm. uh, never quite up to the job, but uh, it's getting more and more interesting at the moment. Yeah, as long as we don't give Chat uh, GDP the launch codes, we're okay. So we won't you know, we won't have to worry about that. Um, but so let's talk about then some of the research you've done over the last year or so. You know, instill what is 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 a budding industry, right? The EV marketplace globally, obviously, in, in countries like China, where it's 40, 50 percent of the global market for plugins, it's it's been a resounding success and it continues to grow. Uh, Europe, again, is ahead of the curve, I would say, than the folks here, myself and folks here in North America, we're a little slow. And then there are other regions that are going to be very slow to adoption, you know, most parts of Latin America, um, the, the African continent and so forth that are going to be challenging in, in a lot of areas. Um, but what are you seeing in some of the, the research that you've been able to put together over the last little time? Because uh, as I said before we started recording, I think the biggest barrier to EV adoption is education. It's just people understanding how EVs could fit into their life from for many different facets. What are the advantages, some disadvantages? Because it's not a it's not a silver bullet, right? It's not a perfect solution to climate change. It's one option that that is something that empowers consumers to be able to control how they Im directly impact climate change and the greenhouse gas emissions by what we drive. So it's a very powerful decision that we can make in the in the in the big piece of the pie that is you know uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So. What are some of the early things that uh, the, the top um, intelligence that you've been able to gather in speaking to a lot of these markets that you have? Yeah. So starting from that macro level perspective that you just started painting, I think we all see that EVs are growing almost exponentially uh, in many markets, um, particularly as you, you said, in, in Europe, um, China, um, obviously Norway has been ahead of the curve for a long time. Looking at net zero, looking at the bigger picture electrification of mobility, and some of the the regulatory decisions that have been taken in you know several U.S. states, mm -hmm. uh, in the U.K. there's not going to be any internal combustion engines on sale after 2030. In Europe, it's 2035. We're not on track, unfortunately. So we're moving very quickly. We started off quite late, and we're not on that curve where. We're looking at close to 100% adoption uh, by mid-century. Mm -hmm. To get there, we probably need to be at around 60% uh, in 2030. And uh, if you take uh, you know, a reliable source like the National Energy Agency, pointing towards that we're going to be around sort of halfway where we should be um, um, by 2030. So we're, we're doing good. Things are moving very quickly but they're not moving quite quickly enough. Um, and our motivation for, for doing this work is that shared perspective that you and I spoke about just before uh, we started recording, which is education is a big barrier. I think it's an underestimated barrier in that all of the data that all of the industry players are sitting on at this point in time are early adopter data. So 
if you think about the traditional sort of <clears throat> adoption curve um, for, for those of you listeners who have read Crossing the Chasm and know about innovators and early adopters and early majority and late yes, majority customers. Like yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's a little sort of, you know, slither and 12% of the market that, that fall into those early adopter categories. I think you and I might count ourselves <laughs> in that category. But uh, we're happy to do our research. We're happy yeah. to find technical workarounds. Um, we're we're happy to sort of make a phone a few extra phone calls once you get into that mainstream market, um, which is sort of a good uh, third of the total market and the real you know mainstream and early majority market. There, people are not going to put up with um, to put it bluntly any more crap, any more mm -hmm. compromises, too much research. And all of the data that we have, um, when we see the growth and the excitement and the buzz around EVs, is essentially from the, the early adopters and the innovators who, who are very happy to do that. So right. to get to that big mainstream market and, and continue and ideally accelerate so we can catch up to that net zero curve that um, the regulators are pushing the, the entire automotive industry to, to fall back on, uh, we need to fill in what we've labeled some of the gaps. Mm -hmm. So we can dive into um, some of these, um, but to start off at a, at a very basic level, um, we have shown through you know simple multiple regression analysis, sort of isolating which factors are really correlating to um, purchase interest and consideration for EVs. Basically, the more experience you have, from knowing nothing to having done a little bit of research to having sat in a friend's car or in a taxi to having gone for a test drive, for each step on that staircase, your likelihood of really seriously considering and, and purchasing an EV goes up. Mm -hmm. And the most basic gap there is that um, in the US, 83% of people have never driven an EV. Right. It's really yeah. hard to make, you know, a <laughs> 30, 40 grand decision based on uh, having never sat in that car. Um, and we also, we can talk a little bit more about this, you know, but there's not the greatest incentives for traditional dealership structures where, you know, a, quite a little, a bit of the, uh, the margin that you make on a, on a sale is, is aftercare. And as we know, mm -hmm. like owning an EV is um, 30 to 40% cheaper over time, which means not that many sort of opportunities for dealerships to to um, to make a little bit more customer lifetime value out of um, that sale that they're used to making as well. So they have a little bit of a disincentive to to really push EVs at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Though of course that is changing as every legacy OEM wakes up to the fact that this is the future, and then sort of the dealerships have to fall into the strategic alignment of. 100% EVs. Now, on that note, David, and I totally agree with you, you know, because I have talked to dealerships. And in fact, I've gone and 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 giving my I do this EV 101 talk um, publicly that I that I do for volunteer work uh, through the EV Society of Canada. And I've actually done that at some dealers just to help educate their their sales folks about what's going on in the EV industry and some of that because they may be narrow focused on their specific product. Um, and not kind of looking at the bigger picture. And you're absolutely right. That is the main concern is that there's going to be a revenue stream shift for them from the post sales, um, you know, which is which is pretty lucrative margin in the service side. 
to not having a lot of that. Now, my counter to that, though, is that you and I know that there is legislation, that there are mandates to stop the sale of ICE vehicles in many countries by certain time periods, 2030, 2035 are benchmarks, people getting the net zero by 2050, you know, a lot of processes. But I think the reality of the situation is that this move to electrification is still a decades-long transition. It's not going to happen. I think 60% by 2030 is very optimistic. I don't think we'll hit 50% by 2030. I think it'll be slightly after. Um, I'd love to see more, you know, don't get me wrong, but, but the reality is that internal combustion vehicles are going to be around for quite some time. So th there still is that revenue stream that's not going to be replaced or displaced right, you know, in a short period of time from EVs. Would you have some data or comment on that? Am I am I dreaming about that approach? No, I agree. And that is exactly the prediction as well from the international energy agencies that we're going to land in the low 30s mm -hmm. by 2030. Um, well, we should really be, but no one is realistically expecting us to be other than in, in a few markets uh, mm -hmm. at that sort of 60% level. So uh, it will take time. And the, the critical point here as well is, is, you know, everyone's talking about sales numbers, uh, which is helpful. But for every vehicle, every uh, ICE vehicle that we put on the road today, you know, that, that vehicle is going to be there in 15 years. Um, mm -hmm. so, a bit longer. so that that starts becoming a problem quite quickly if you're talking about getting close to 100% by, by mid-century. Mm -hmm. Sales is not going to cut it. You're going to have to sort of track back 10, 15 years ahead of that, which again puts the puts the pressure on. So there is there is that discrepancy between the science. Um, and if you are fearing climate change and you believe in the science, the mm -hmm. policy, which is relatively well aligned uh, with that, and then getting to this mainstream, chunky, early majority market. Uh, and coming back to that, that's where we have these gaps, right? That's where we have identified that we need to get people into cars at the very most basic level. We think that's going to happen um, pretty quickly. Um, the second one that we, we've identified is about charge speed. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the most common uh, barriers to adoption that we hear is that we, you know, we've established an infrastructure where we pull over, refill, grab a cup of coffee, get in the car and, and get going. Um, and, almost do that um you know for for ev knowledgeable people knowing that you know you you dry down to 10 percent and then you charge up to 60 percent and then you sort of get going again if you want to get going quickly and you're, mm -hmm. you're on a rapid charger um unfortunately when we talk to a new car buyers um that's not what we're seeing um so we we actually see 94 percent of people overestimating the time mm -hmm. um and quite a few of them, uh, a majority of people think they will take at least an hour, which I'm sure you're familiar with that sort of trope at this stage that, oh, you're going to be stuck for, you know, an hour or two. At every I used charge. to have a 40 kilowatt Nissan Leaf and in the winter yeah. time, <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to drive from yeah. here to Windsor, it's going to take uh, 45 minutes to an hour and a half to, to, to get where I need to go for, for a charge. Yeah. yeah. So that, that legacy yeah, technology is still there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that is um, it's an interesting way of framing it as well, because um, for many of these uh, perceptions, you can see a three to five year sort of lag mm -hmm. so that people might be living in 2018. Um, but if they were to buy an EV and charge it on a on a rapid infrastructure along you know most motorways 
now in, in Canada and the US, you should have access to rapid chargers as long as they're working. And I'm mm -hmm. not saying that the, the, the infrastructure is quite there yet. We still see problems with broken chargers and compatibility, et cetera. Um, but if you're in the right place with the with the appropriate charger for a longer road trip, um, there is no hour long wait anymore. Right. It is that sort of go in, grab a cup of coffee, come back out again, and you're pretty much on your way. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you really want to stop for an hour long lunch break, well, then you have you know 250 or 300 miles with um, a 2023 model, because that's the other thing that the range has gone up. Um, quite a bit over the last five years since the the, the 40 kilowatt nissan leaves were sort of mm -hmm. top of the top of yes. the line cars that's right um but but the perception gap uh mm -hmm. again in certain markets in terms so we don't see range anxiety as a as a sort of a central problem anymore and people know that you know 90 95 percent of journeys are uh well within the capabilities of modern evs around your hometown and um and sort of your daily commute uh, but that sort of road trip, and that might be an emotional trip, right? It might be mm. you only have a couple of trips like that every year. But if it's going home for Thanksgiving um, and you're seeing family or you just packed, you know, the tent and the entire family for your summer holidays, yeah, that might be a really sort of charged trip where you actually might base your purchase decision on a really couple of critical trips, even though 5% mm -hmm. of the time, you don't have a care in the world. You're, you don't have any problems. So yeah. we need to we need to um, go from range anxiety to now talking about charge speed, and that's a, a key educational gap as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there is something that we can really sort of help um, show people pulling up the rapid charger, grabbing a cup of coffee, getting going again. Uh, I said in in you know rural parts of, of most uh, Western countries, the network isn't quite there yet. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, in on along major major motorways, highways, then it's getting pretty good. Uh, and yeah. people are just living in the past again a little bit. Absolutely, no, it's it's definitely solid viewpoints. Uh, you know, and we do come up, uh, uh, especially when I'm talking to people all the time. That that certainly is a concern. And you know, one of the things that the OEMs don't do very well is explain that experience, right? You know, if you, I mean, the good thing is the visibility for EVs are there. Like, watch a Super Bowl now, um, and there's. You know, I mean, we get the Canadian feed, which we don't get the raw U.S. feed in most stations. But this year there were seven or eight car commercials that I could count for all electrics. So every year they just continue to spend more money and advertise. So we're getting that out there. But the story they're saying is, oh, you, you'll get 112 miles in 10 minutes. Well, people can you can throw those numbers out there, but that doesn't really relate to them. Right. Again, to that to the level of experience that you were just trying to to talk about that people are concerned about um you know in 10 minutes 112 miles okay that's good but yeah how long do i really have to sit there and 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 it's not a perfect science right because there are a lot of ifs you know what's your state of charge on arrival what's the temperature is it preconditioned what kind of evse do you have how much can you pull from it you know there's a lot of variables to, that's going to dictate to get from 10 to 80 percent you know in that charge but some of the oems like uh you know the south koreans that have put 800 volt architectures that are able to pump, you know, 250, 301, you know, this kind of stuff, speeds, um, and, you know, can can get that down safely to a, an 18 to 20 minute experience. And they use that language. So I think, you know, would you, would you agree that that kind of resonates more with consumers saying, you know, to go from 10 to 80 is about 18 to 20 minutes. 
And then people can say, okay, well, if I'm stopping for gas and a coffee, normally that's 10 minutes. So what's another five to 10 minutes? Because I'm saving so much more money because well, I'm not putting petrol and gas in my car. Does that make sense? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and you're striking upon a completely critical point here, which yeah. is um, the industry, again, is, is a little bit caught up. Um, and Tesla um, had to be there, you know, seven, eight years ago, mm -hmm. still clinging on a little bit to this sort of engineering product uh, point of view of the world, where talking about kilowatts and kilowatt hours um, and, you know, Chatamos and Type 2s, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're alienating all of that mainstream audience that just want a quick, simple, right. trust-body solution. Um, you know, we introduced the concept of as well about emotional labor, right? To go mm -hmm. through in a, in a decision that's a big considered decision. There's a lot of money going into your car purchase. So I completely agree with you that the, the one key thing is, is messaging as well and just simplifying things. You say like, totally you can agree. say 18 minutes or you can say, you know, go in, use the bathroom, grab a cup of coffee and you'll be on your way. And then ideally, of course, having someone experience that in a low stake situation, like mm -hmm. with a friend on a road trip or on a test drive. Uh, if we can get to that, then um, we also have the positive side, which is every day you wake up. If you are mm -hmm. able to charge at home um, on your driver in your garage, you wake up to full tank. You wake up to in Canada. I'm from Sweden, so you know, mm -hmm. wake up to in winter to a preheated car with no frost on the windows. Oh yeah, that's nice. Sitting in my garage, yeah. that's preheated and preconditioned, ready to go, and no fumes, none of this stuff, right? Exactly. So mm -hmm. you can start sort of putting out those kinds of messages as well. Mm -hmm. You have to fix the basics. You know, again the the mainstream market, the early majority customers, they're not going to put up with any inconvenience. Uh, but then you can also sort of transition to giving these sort of this bonus added, you know, the joy of the acceleration, you know, the spaciousness of the car. And then you start getting into uh, until you ri uh, reach price parity, which unfortunately with uh, lithium now seeming like the kilowatt hour prices of batteries are well, stagnating, going up mm -hmm. a little bit for the first time in, in, in 20 years. We might have a few more years to just rely on price as the ultimate you know we're going to have to sell the the benefits that you get with right. evs um and we've also done a segmentation um of customers where we can see that you know for some people it is about the environment and the credentials and the benefits for some people it's all about the tech and the excitement for some people it's about being seen um and sort of being part of a lifestyle uh, mm -hmm. and for some people it's all about that financial equation and the spreadsheet and the cost savings so you're going to have to also figure out who your customers are and what kind of message will will register with them um, because there's no point in sort of going just broad on the environment. Uh, you're just going to hit, you know, a, a part of the market which might mm -hmm. not be customers for, for your brand, for your model in that specific context. So exactly. all exactly. these things are important, but mm -hmm. you really need to think about where you're going with um which each each of the simple messages that you clearly sort of convey to a very specific target in mind which is it's kind of marketing 101 but mm -hmm. innovative <laughs> uh categories and particularly with um clients that are super smart but often sort of tech engineering led um organizations um 
just like we see in Silicon Valley, sometimes mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, it's not a natural sort of approach uh, when you've got a really cool innovation that goes really fast. Right. Exactly. And you, you touched upon this, um, you know, that I, I totally agree. Keeping it simple, right? That KISS approach is what we need now because we, we're past that first adopter, right? We're into the second wave and we're into people that are trying to get more into mainstream. Uh, and, you know, I, and I'll use my wife as an example. She doesn't care about kilowatts or any of this stuff. She's how can I make this experience simple, right? If I have to plug in a charge, how do I do that? Now we have a Model 3, so Tesla has been genius in making the charging experience drop that simple. Just plug it in, sit, sleep, whatever, go go somewhere, come back, unplug and go. And everything's taken care of. Now we know that there are protocols like plug and charge and auto charge that are that are out to help, you know, manufacturers and EVSC providers and charging network providers make, you know, make a similar experience, but it's not all there yet. Um, but that total cost of ownership that you mentioned about it is extremely important because people are fixated on, on the price, especially in the US. I interviewed somebody that knows the, the American market very well. And they said, we're, we're a Walmart nation, right? We're just, we're looking at that price. Yeah, you can talk about our TCO and ROI, but we're just, it's 20 grand more than this for a similar vehicle. Why would I do that? So um, how how are you seeing car makers tackling the confusion around EV uh, total cost of ownership? Or what do you feel they could be doing better there? It's about selling the whole product. Mm -hmm. That's what we, we call it in slightly technical jargon, but um, the product is no longer the latest model. Mm -hmm. So what you're selling is behavior change. And as you know, right, what you're selling is a, a car, which is simpler. Mm -hmm. um, that needs less attention and repairs and maintenance and, and considerations over time. But you're also selling charging, right? So the, the customer journey that we talk about in, in, in marketing and in decision behavior is um, broken at this stage, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I got my first EV uh, about 12 months ago. Um, oh, I had congrats. to go and... Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm, I'm loving it, but I had to go and... Uh, Talk to my local authority because I, I don't have. Uh, I live in you know in London. I don't mm -hmm. have a, a driveway or a mm -hmm. garage. Very hard. Yes. Um, you know, where am I allowed to charge? Can we install charges on my street? Mm -hmm. uh, that turned out not to be possible. Um, so then I had to go and you know get my standard home charger installed mm -hmm. um, at my property. Uh, I had to pick uh, a charger. I had to pick an installer. I had to uh, call up my um, electricity company, um, my utility, um, to negotiate my nighttime rate mm, so like okay. now with all of those things set up um i drive a car that is um on a fuel basis 90 something percent cheaper to run than than an ice car it's, mm -hmm. it's incredible right i got uh, an 80 percent discount on my electric electricity rate during the hours of the night mm -hmm. all of these things coming back to where we started the conversation right are early adopter behaviors yes. um, so what coming back to your question right what the car companies to do is to sell the whole product and mm -hmm. the whole solution so that i can hand over my my credit card um my bank details uh to a financing company get a charger installed get mm -hmm. everything explained to me ideally partner with uh, utility and this is something that we're seeing more and more mm -hmm. um we have a wonderful um utility that's pioneering this sort of overnight time uh rates in the uk called octopus yeah so they mm -hmm. i plug in and 
in in the evening and they sort of calculate the hours where the offshore wind is blowing mm -hmm. uh, on the north sea over the course of the night and the mm -hmm. electricity mix makes sense i don't think about anything now right. that everything is set up um and i get that dirt cheap electricity or clean electricity um and it's a wonderful experience but i need to be able to go into a dealership and have someone just take care of all of those things for me as a yes. mainstream majority customer so that's that's the key thing here i think mm -hmm. partnerships selling the whole product thinking about it at the customer journey from a customer perspective and getting out of the box of thinking about selling the latest model with the latest coolest feature and then right. however they fuel it up is traditionally is completely up to the customer right yep with established infrastructure that doesn't work for evs because mm -hmm. um, that touches upon um, another point that you mentioned previously which is incentives right mm -hmm. uh, the standard incentive in the us europe um, in most of the world has been just um, give them a discount at the point of sale mm -hmm. uh, at a dealership which is great and it's been really helpful while evs have traditionally had um, a sort of a 30 percent price premium to them it's coming mm -hmm. down a little bit now but as we mentioned with lithium etc it's not coming down to price parity quite as quickly as we would have liked to see mm -hmm. um so we need those but you're not taking care of any of that emotional labor you're still not selling the whole product through your incentive structure so when we ask people what are your biggest barriers what would you like to see in terms of an incentive and we translate that uh, price discount on the sticker price into other things of a, uh, equivalent value we see chargers home chargers coming out on mm -hmm. top so mm -hmm. that comes back to the point to just help me buy the whole product solve yeah. the problem reduce the emotional labor and then we're on to really winning recipe where also policymakers uh, because this is taxpayer money right yes um yeah. they could get a lot more bang for their buck which is super interesting. So yeah. if we get smarter with incentives, we could use that taxpayer money more efficiently and get more people to adopt at the same time. Yeah, no, it's a great viewpoint um, because I was going to ask you about, you know, your thoughts about EV incentives and, you know, why they're not working. And, and I certainly get that picture. I agree. It, it, there is a holistic picture that needs to be painted for consumers. Um, you know, the price point objection with an incentive is great. It, 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 I think it helps get somebody into a showroom or maybe into into the seat of an EV it gets them into that point will it get them to pull the trigger on a sale probably not enough you know pricing is only one part of the equation um we are seeing incentives work here in Canada you know BC and Quebec who are two leading provinces with the highest incentives are leading the country in EV adoption no surprise we had it here in Ontario or we had a government come in in 2018 they took it away and we saw our sales fall off a cliff now we're slowly regaining that just because of the momentum of the marketplace but so there's certainly something that gets people's attention and and helps and it's taxpayers money but I totally agree it needs to be part of the broader picture I guess on the point about the OEMs I am starting to see companies do what you're saying that they should be doing and I'll use GM as a good example um you know you go to talk to them now and they're they're you know newer to the game right there's they're they are painting that whole picture where they are providing for some of their brands like Cadillac and others, they're providing concierge services. So you buy a Lyric, you get a concierge, a concierge service of somebody who will help you determine what's the best uh, type of level two charger. You know, first, can you get one? Second, 
what type and you know and how to install it and they'll help you get a find an electrical contractor they'll help you put all the pieces together there's some incentives for for customers as far as maybe credits towards a charger or something if they need one so they will help expand that customer experience beyond here's your car here's the key fob have a nice life they will they will take that extra effort through some of these services and make sure that uh, consumers can take full advantage of their all electric purchases by what you said um, the low-hanging fruit in the market is home charging right that ability to, to you know say that your home is your gas station is gold that there's nothing like it in the automotive industry um, and in, you know, in Canada alone, we have like eight million, eight to nine million homes. You know, these are residences where people could either externally plug into something or or put in a level level two charger. Uh, and we've only got maybe three hundred and sixty thousand e plugins on the road in Canada. So there's a huge gap just in the low hanging fruit. Never mind urban, like what you've explained in your situation, where you're much more dense, and, and we get that all the time. But so I do think that that OEMs are starting to get that picture. GM is one of the ones that seems to be leading that, even though they're not selling a lot of product, right? They're, they're still ramping up their production, but they're getting there. But they are seeing the big picture and not only looking at a vehicle, but all these auxiliary services that go with it. So the the concierge, they're talking, they're looking at their their 360 Connect program, uh, which will embed other charging providers in North America into one account. So, you know, they'll handle the payment. So to give you that Tesla-like experience, because Tesla's been great at talking about financial ROI, right? For for years, you go on their website, you look at, you pick a car and it tells you estimated gas savings, $6,000 over five years or whatever it is. They've been pushing this this total cost of ownership for years, but, but then that's where it stops. You go to buy Tesla now, they don't really the experience is a five minute experience. You do it on the web and then you go pick up your car. You're there for 20 minutes looking over your car and then the guy goes to the next one because they're just so busy. So even they have lost track in that personalized experience that you've been talking about, about broadening the picture, about talking about chargers. When I bought my Model 3, they didn't tell me anything about a charger. They didn't even mention it. Now, I already had one. So for me, I was ahead of the curve, but just utilizing that example. So uh, you know, great points, and and I totally agree with you that OEMs need to step up and do a better job. So you you talked about EV range as well earlier, and we all know that it's gotten better over the last few years. And I don't think you need a thousand kilometer or six hundred mile vehicle. I don't think you need one because nobody's doing that in a day. And if there's enough reliable charging infrastructure, then that will offset the need. But you know, you guys mentioned that attitudes towards EV range are still five years out of date can you you know summarize that a little bit more for me how why you've seen yeah, that? We're, mm -hmm. we're seeing that um in uh, in some european markets more actually okay. than in north america mm -hmm. i think um in north america used to longer distances yes. and have have a higher bar um and might not be quite aware that that you know 300 mile uh, long range model three or the other new new cars that are coming out if you're willing to pay a little bit of a premium is available. Mm -hmm. um, certainly aware that uh, a range of sort of 200 miles um, is no longer exceptional or not yeah. to be expected. So in Europe, we still have a little bit more of that problem. We say like we're, we're living in the past uh, mm -hmm. a little bit more, um, but we still need to get people to feel that, you know, 300 miles is achievable. Um, and certainly some people, we, we differentiate between the people that are 
new car buyers and considering EVs and the new car buyers and rejecting EVs. Mm -hmm. And the North American rejectors still have a, that little bit of a bias of, you know, I'm never going to get more than 150 miles out of this, um, mm -hmm. which is living in five years ago, but no longer true today. Um, and yeah, if you, if you need 300 miles, you can get it. So mm -hmm. that's another little bit of a, of a gap that we need to, to fill in. Interesting. And I wanted to ask you, uh, I'm checking out the time, so I know we're almost going to be wrapping up, but you know, you mentioned um, in the material that I received that you've done a lot of research into the attitudes, both in the US marketplace, the UK and Germany. And it's interesting, I'd love to get just quickly your observations about those three markets about what are their most compelling differences in the way that they view EVs and EV adoption, or are they all similar? Now you meant you you touched upon the U.S. range aspect, so because we're a larger you know geographic footprint, we you know just for me to drive uh, across Canada just to get out of Ontario, I could be driving for eighteen hours before I even yep. leave the province. So, and in Europe, you're in five different countries, right? In eighteen hours, so it's it's some people come over here, they go, "Wow, I can't believe how big your country is." Uh, so we have that, but is there anything that struck you in your research between those three geographies? Um, on how they differentiate in their viewpoints of EV adoption. Yeah, so th there are broad similarities, mm -hmm. right? We, we're talking about, you know, coming back to our gaps of the experiential gaps, the charging time, I think is more important than the range sort of gap at the moment. Um, there are very broad similarities in terms of the direction which mm -hmm. we're looking at. Uh, and that need that you highlighted early on of, of education as the key thing to really tackle at this point in time. Um, North America and the, sorry, the US, we, we didn't talk to Canadian new car buyers in this study. Mm -hmm. um, they are a little bit behind in terms of, you know, when we ask people, for example, um, a slightly more political question of um, are EVs actually better for the environment overall, mm -hmm. you know, all, all things considered manufacturing and, and driving and longevity, et cetera. The life cycle, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Partly as a result of the political climate in the US, you see mm -hmm. that sort of fragmentation and and a little bit more ignorance as to yes. the engineering and scientific facts than you do in, for example, the UK and Germany. Mm -hmm. But directionality, we have a huge problem. You know, when I when I mentioned these gaps, we, we're not talking about 51% of, of people or a little minority of people having these misconceptions. Um, a lot of the figures that we've been chatting about, even though I haven't been calling them out specifically, we're talking about, you know, three quarters or four fifths of, of people or, you know, nine tenths of, of people. That's a real problem. Um, yeah. So, uh, and that's not directionally different between these markets. We have to go to another market that we looked at was Norway, just to have a a perspective of the market that has come the furthest in in the world that has you know coming back to that curve of net zero and you know when we should have started and the amount of incentives mm -hmm. that's where we see people on average not really sort of suffering from these gaps anymore mm. uh, another interesting market is is china which has been you know so you know, using that um, slightly overused term leapfrogging, right? A lot of people going from having no car to go, getting an EV. Mm -hmm. So they are also uh, pretty well educated on, on average and pretty open as a result to, to EVs. They don't have as much of the baggage and the education right. to, 
to undo as well um, and less of the disinformation uh, along you know energy and um, climate change and, and things like that sort of providing slight stumbling blocks mm-hmm. uh, so yes there are slight differences yes the u.s trails a little bit behind on certain things but um the germans have got their job cut out for them as well and where i'm mm-hmm. sitting in, in in britain we have uh, we have a big problem interesting interesting and yeah you mentioned you know china as an example and, and i talked mentioned earlier about you know 40 50 percent of the market and, and it's not because they're building cheap evs i mean you know they build a, a they have a lot of manufacturers building a wide variety of evs from the, you know the wooling mini at 4500 us to you know hundred thousand dollar us plus vehicles so they have a wide broad but uh, but what they're doing is they're incentivizing not only through they've been on and off with their NEV incentives, but um, you know uh, one one real world incentive is you can get your license plate and registration really quick if it's an EV versus if it's a regular car you have to wait a year or something like it's it's outstanding, and if you need a vehicle and get going on it you don't want to wait a year so you'll you'll take the plunge so they're kind of almost forcing people into that because they have to right for for their for their climate change needs that that they that they need to do. So um yeah, I kind of had the same sentiments. I wasn't uh, surprised when you mentioned the Germans and then UK, you know, have some catching up to do. Even here in Canada, you know, we had a long way to go. We basically mimic the US, right? We're joined at the hip. So, you know, yes, we like to say we're independent of them and we are to a degree, but our markets are so tied together, our economic markets that we have to kind of move along with them to a point of view. So I think the IRA from the from the Biden administration is helping push, obviously, uh, EV adoption forward with not only increasing the incentives offerings to more OEMs and, and eliminating caps, but, you know, billions of dollars into charging infrastructure to national entities. And it's all getting a lot of good visibility. So that's starting to help drive the curve. But we have a long way to go. To summarize then, David, um, what would you like to leave folks with as far as, you know, what we see the future of of the EV revolution over the next few years, how this might play out based on what you guys know? I think there's a lot of untapped potential. Mm -hmm. So there's good news here in that there is a tremendous opportunity up for grabs. You know, taking a step back and looking at that macro picture again, and maybe looking at it not from a planetary perspective, but from a an automotive industry perspective, right? There is a race going on driven by policy uh, and regulation uh, primarily. Um, It is heating up. And before you know it, you know, three, five years down the line, some positions in that race are going to be relatively firmly established. You know, you mentioned, you know, EV challenger brands coming out of China, very price competitive, even if they're in the sort of more luxury class. Tesla's margin structure and being able to drop price by 20% in a <laughs> blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, I would be, if I was a, you know, a proud legacy OEM brand, uh, pretty nervous, even though my sales directors are hitting all of their sales figures on a quarterly basis and all the models have been spoken about for the next six months. Um, looking just slightly further ahead, which I, I know on a sort of quarterly stock market uh, earnings cycle can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be pretty nervous at this point. And the good news is this is an edge, this educational point of view. It's not just from a public policy, um, sort of the right thing to do uh, and getting mainstream consumers opening their eyes, 
this could be a competitive edge for a lot of um, these big companies um, that are looking to get ahead in the race. Because another piece of good news is it's pretty cheap, you know, rather than to do what Mercedes is doing and <clears throat> coming up with the, you know, thousand kilometer battery. Mm -hmm. uh, great if we can get there cheaply in the future. But as you say, we don't need that. Mm -hmm. um, what we do need is someone who can really figure out marketing 101, you know, how to connect with people, figure out how they make purchasing decisions, sell the whole product, make it straightforward for them. Uh, and that could mean the difference between, and this is another data point that we have, consumer expectations of which companies are going to do good uh, in 2030 and, and maybe not so good in 2030. Can you give me three that you think will do good by then? Are you able to talk about that? <laughs> Call uh, anybody this, is just, uh, this is just consumer uh, yeah. perceptions again. Uh -huh, so sure. this is part of the data set. And yeah, very happy to, sh to share it with you and your, your listeners as well. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we see if we look at, you know, who's going to be more sustainable, uh, more taking in leadership in an EV position, more innovative, and then also with that sort of subjective, um, every man's um, crowd prediction of who's going to do well and not so well. Mm -hmm. Unsurprisingly, some of the EV first brands uh, come out on top, but it's not just Tesla, even though that's the most well-known obvious mm -hmm. example. You're also looking at some of these smaller, newer EV challenger startups coming up very high on all of those scores. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, they have the growth potential, right? So there's, there's an element of that. But then when you might look at brands that have attributes that are traditionally, um, you know, the sort of American muscle car uh, or grand design um, associated. So a brand like Cadillac, I know they're waking up now and, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're doing great work. Um, consumers are a little bit fearful for the performance of, of Cadillac seven mm -hmm. years from now uh, because they haven't communicated until this point in time, right? So right. things are changing quickly. They haven't communicated any of those things. So if you look at the sort of traditional American and some of the muscle car brands, um, they should have all done what Ford has done with the Mustang and sort of turned it around ahead of time and, mm -hmm. and led away instead of waiting and, and sort of entering uh, the race, you know, a little bit uh, behind everyone else mm -hmm. can be a very, very difficult um, position to be in, not at least from a branding perspective, right? If, if people go out and, you know, own the mental space of uh, what all of these wonderful products can do in the in the future, um, and Tesla's had you know a decade to establish that position already. <laughs> yes, um, it takes a lot of um, uh, a lot of marketing money and a lot of comms to to try to change perceptions. Um, and when you have all of these challenger brands coming out, that might be um, a really really tricky thing to do. But again, the good news is educating and um, increasing adoption uh, and conversional customers uh, from an industry point of view, this is one of the cheaper ways of doing it, much cheaper than uh, coming up with the next greatest um, battery innovation that's gonna take years to roll out. This is something we can do today that will pay dividends you know, in a decade to come. Excellent, well, uh, you, know, you keep that conversation going with the OEMs that I know that you're having with a lot of your clients because it's, it's critically important to get that messaging up. Totally agree with you, 100%. Uh, 
Um, it, it's an interesting time. Uh, I agree with you. I think the OEMs need to step up again. I mentioned GM earlier. A lot of my listeners and viewers know that I'm, I'm pretty pro GM only because they've really come out. Yes, they've come out late. I would agree with you there, but at least they're, you know, they're throwing their investments, their tooling, their, their model lines into all EVs. Ford started, I agree with you, but they kind of, you know, yes, they brought in the 150, which is their marquee brand as well. They sell a ton of them, but they're just not able to, to, to really stoke up deliveries. And I always go back. Yes, I agree. There's importance with some of the niche players that they're getting mind share and they're, they're helping to educate viewers, uh, educate the market. However, we need those large economies of scale to happen. And we need millions of EVs to be pumped out, not tens of thousands, like some of the niche guys will be able to do. And that's what falls back on the, the Fords, the GM, the Stellantis's, and on and on, you know, the brands like that to do. So, I yeah, I hear, you know, oh, you know, Polestar, so they sold, you know, 80,000 vehicles or whatever. Great, but we need 800,000 from them, not 80, like to make a difference, right? So that's where I'm going is we really need this mass scale to, to pump up. So you you guys continue doing what you're doing. I think it's great. Um, how can how can people who are interested in finding out more about what you do find you guys? Yeah, check out our website, uh, skimgroup.com. I'll say that again. Check out our website, mm-hmm. skimgroup.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Voxlin is my surname, um, at Voxlin on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, if any of your listeners are are interested, I'm super happy to to share the more detailed data points and, and uh, the, the reports directly with them as well. You can download them from our website. Excellent. Well, again, it's been a pleasure, David. You and I can keep talking for another hour. I know that, but I've got to end it uh, because uh, I don't want it to be too long and I appreciate your time. So I've been speaking with David Voxlin. He's the Director of Sustainability and Behavior Change. Sounds like you're a psychologist. I need to I need to send you a check or something after this session here. <laughs> with SKIM, a behavior um expertise company and consultancy i uh, base he's david's in the uk i really appreciate your time david thanks a lot it's been a great conversation very interesting conversation thanks for having me and hopefully we'll we'll reconnect maybe in in you know in a year or less and just see how some of the things that you've pointed out if if they've been taken uh, to heart for some of the oems and see how the market's looking then i'd love to follow up with you again absolutely look forward to it well thank you again very much Thanks again for listening, folks. You can email me if you have comments. Email at evrevolutionshow at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at evrevshow. I'm also on Instagram, evrevolutionshow. And if you uh, have any suggestions for shows, please let me know. Thanks again for listening, and please, everybody stay safe. And until the next time, I'll see you when I see you. Mm-hmm.